So earlier this year, uh, Crossway published uh, the book, uh, A Peculiar Glory, that I talked about last time I was in Skamania, and uh, the subtitle of that book is How the Christian Scriptures Reveal uh, or Show Themselves to Be the be completely true. And the thesis of that book is that since the Bible is inspired by God, and since being inspired, it is therefore the Word of God, therefore it will radiate or communicate or express, reveal, open the glory of God in such a way that those who are not spiritually blind will be able to see the self-authenticating evidences that this is the very word of God. That's, that's the thesis of that book. And I promised at the end of that book that if that's true, then it carries enormous implications for how you would read the Bible and that a second book would be necessary. And I finished that in March. And uh, I think just last week, Amazon put the, the cover up for pre-order and it's to be out next April called Reading the Bible Supernaturally. And that's what we're going to spend three sessions on. So I'm going to summarize that book in three sessions with you so that you don't, you don't have to buy the book. You'll have the essence of it. Although there, there is a fourth session needed, but we only have three um, so, so we'll do it in three the best we can. When I came to the end of that book, it was obvious to me that if the Bible authenticates itself by a revelation of the peculiar glory of God in and through what it means then all of our Bible reading should pray toward, work toward, do everything it can toward seeing that divine and supernatural light, that glory. And if that were true, then reading the Bible is not ordinary, it's extraordinary, it's supernatural because the seeing of that glory according to the Bible is a work of God. Paul talks about the eyes of the heart in Ephesians 1.18. Well, what is that? Eyes of heart. So that's where we're going and you have... Uh, I don't think I put all three sessions on there, but you, you have an outline of, of session one. Session one is the ultimate goal of reading the Bible. Session two is the supernatural act of reading the Bible this afternoon or tonight, whenever it is, and tomorrow morning, the, the natural act of reading the Bible supernaturally. The natural act of reading the Bible supernaturally. So let's start with this proposed goal. So this is my effort to try to say why should anybody ultimately read the Bible? What is, what, what's the end game? 
Our ultimate goal in reading the Bible, it's printed there at the top of your sheet, I think, is that God's infinite worth and beauty would be exalted in the everlasting white-hot worship of the blood-bought bride of Christ from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. People, language, tribe, and nation. Now, if that's true, there are at least six implications that follow. Or you could say there are six assumptions built in there. And you can, if you, if you discern them, you can draw out these implications. And what I want to do is state each of those implications, which are there on your sheet, and then give biblical warrant for those implications, and in that way, reinforce the goal. Because if these six implications are true, if they're biblical, then this, this way of saying the goal is true and biblical. So that's the plan. Number one, the infinite worth and beauty of God are the ultimate value and excellence of the universe. So the goal, that, the goal of reading the Bible that I've stated here elevates the worth and beauty of God, the glory of God, you could say, to the highest possible place. The word infinite here, the infinite worth and beauty of God is not an exaggeration. It's not a rhetorical flourish. It's not a sermonic effort to impress. It is strictly, accurately true. God's worth is infinite and God's beauty is infinite. And therefore, I'm arguing, has ultimate value and is the ultimate excellence. There is a thing any more valuable in the universe and there isn't anything more excellent in the universe and how obvious that is when you pause and think about it and how few people live like that's true. How few people, if you stopped them on the street and said, what's the greatest excellence? What's, what's most valuable? Would say, the worth of God, the beauty of God. So when I speak of the, the worth and the beauty of God, I'm referring to His glory, just choosing different words. And the glory of God is the way he designates, or we designate, or God in his word designates the, the beauty and the greatness of the person who was there before anything else was there. This is really worth thinking about. So once there was only God, there was no universe, there was no space, there was no time, there was only God. That was reality. And therefore, he is without origin, he's without comparison, he's without analogy, he's without any capacity to be judged or assessed with any external criterion that would pass judgment on him as something superior to him. 
He is all-defining, he's absolute, he's original. So the original worth, the original greatness, the original beauty, and therefore all created worth, everything else that you value, all created worth and all created greatness and all created beauty comes from the original and points to the original. Now, how do we know that the glory of God, the worth and beauty of God, how do we know that they are the ultimate value and the ultimate excellence in the universe? And you, you, you could say, well, that's just what it means to be God. Well, yes, that's true, it is. But better to actually hear him say it, at least in my life, Inferences from truths that are not explicitly grounded in Scripture, I hold to, but when I see things said in Scripture, explicitly, especially controversial things, the power they have in my life is greater. So I think it's helpful here not just to say, well... (laughs) infinite worth and beauty mean they are the highest worth and the greatest excellence, I'd say, well, let's let God make this plain. And and the way he makes it plain in the Bible is most remarkable. It's had a huge impact on me over the years that God has said over and over again in the Bible that the ultimate goal in all that he does is to communicate his glory for the world to see and for his people to admire and enjoy and praise. There isn't any divine goal beyond that goal. That is the ultimate end goal. The revelation or communication of his worth, of his beauty, of his glory for his people to savor, enjoy, admire, Praise, make much of. That's the end goal of the universe. That's why he made everything and does everything that he does. So let's just listen to him say this. So before the foundation of the world, he predestined us for sonship, Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So you are elect and predestined to praise Him. That's the end of the reason He chose you. Second, He created the universe then, having elected His people, (coughs) He created the universe for His glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. That's why they're out there. They tell us of the glory of God. Or Isaiah 43, 7, everyone whom I created for my glory. So you exist to make God look glorious. Three, he sent Jesus into the world for this reason. John 1, 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son came as the incarnate display and revelation of the glory of God. 
4. The son came to the end of his life. He faced the cross. And this is what he said in his prayer, John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That's what's going to happen tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Good Friday. Father, the hour has come. What's this hour about? Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Five, raised from the dead then, Romans 6, 4, by the glory of the Father. And then Philippians 2, 9 to 11, given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is If you collapse that sentence down and just start with the front and end with the back, Jesus is given a name above every name to the glory of the Father. So the Father sent the Son to do His redeeming work and be raised from the dead and given a name over every name that the Father would be seen as supremely glorious. And six. He sent the Holy Spirit. What is the number one mission of the Holy Spirit? John 16, 14, He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is in the world to enable you to see Jesus as glorious. And then to live in such a way to make Him look that way. As your supreme treasure. Seven. He sanctifies His people, makes them holy. Why? Philippians 1.11, the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I said last night, I, I would like you to be built up while you're here. I would like your, your uh, durability to be made stronger your ability to give refuge to people to be made more secure and peaceful, and your beauty as godly, holy, loving, sacrificial, serving people to be intensified. And here is the ultimate reason for wanting that to happen, that you might be filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The Holy Spirit is in the world causing us to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit to the praise of the glory of God. God is intended to be glorious by the way He beautifies His people. And then finally, number eight, He's coming again. And why is He coming? Second Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10, to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's why he's coming back. In other words, from election before creation to um, consummation and everything after this world is complete, the goal of God, the goal of God in all that he does is to communicate his glory to the world as the supreme value and excellence of the world. So, implication one, 
the infinite worth and beauty of God are the ultimate value and excellence of the universe. Therefore, our ultimate goal in reading the Bible is that God's infinite worth and beauty be exalted. And the implication is that worth and beauty are ultimate in value, ultimate in excellence, and that implication, I believe, then, is true. Implication number two, the supremely authentic and intense worship of God's worth and beauty is the ultimate aim of all His work and word. Now, it's almost the same as number one. You might say, well, I don't mean, what's the difference? The difference is that I'm moving from objective fact in implication number one. Implication number one said, the infinite worth and beauty of God are fact, objective fact, are the ultimate value and excellence of the universe. And I'm moving from objective fact to subjective response, namely God's aim in the communication of the objective fact of his infinite value is that he be worshipped with authentic and intense worship. This is getting close now to Christian hedonism and why What we drive at desiring God is not just right knowledge about God, but right heart responses toward God. The infinite worth and beauty, this is, I'm I'm looking at the goal at the top of your page, the infinite worth and beauty would be exalted in the everlasting white hot worship of God's people. So now I'm, I'm saying this implies that supremely authentic and intense worship of God's worth and beauty is the ultimate aim. So his, the, the way I said it first, it may have gone by you too fast, was that in all that he does, he aims to communicate his glory as the supreme value. That'd be the end of implication one. And I'm saying for the enjoyment and worship of his people. So the two relate as... This is the ultimate aim objectively, and this is the ultimate aim subjectively. They go together like that. John 4.23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So now you have it in black and white. Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshipers. He's not just seeking to make his objective infinite worth known. He is seeking that the knowledge would land on people in such a way that they would be worshipers. That is, they would delight in him and love him, and praise him, and treasure him, and honor him, and glorify him, and treasure him above all things. The best way to keep in your mind, lest you intellectualize worship, 
and think that reciting the Apostles' Creed is worship. I mean, the devil can recite the Apostles' Creed. Every word in it. It's not worship in his mind, in his mouth. It's not worship until that's your treasure, right? And so God's not worshipped until the human heart is treasuring God as worth. Worship worth. And, and it's not just, I mean, so many people, it seems to me, to try to de-emotionalize worship. Say, worship is uh, um, displaying the worth of God. Well, good grief. The devil quotes scripture. He knows it backwards and forwards. And in that objective sense, it's on display as true. And he hates every bit of it. God's worth is not worshipped until it is felt as infinitely worthy. Felt as treasure. So if the people sitting there in the pew have money in their pocket and God in the sermon, and they want their money more than they want the God of that sermon, they don't worship. So, this is really, really big. The ultimate goal of God is not just to communicate the infinite worth and excellence that he is, but to be worshipped for it. I use the word white hot because when we finally stand before the glory of God, unclouded by sin and worldliness and Satan, unclouded, the affections of our heart will be there. It will be white hot. And in this life of embattled half-worship, we should want to get as close as we can. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, the most scary words in the Bible, maybe, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And Romans 12, 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. What does the word fervent mean? It's interesting that the Latin on which the English word fervent is built is fervens, which means boil. And the Greek, zeontes, which is behind this word, is boil. Boiling in spirit. This is a command. Do not be slothful in zeal, but boil in the Spirit. In other words, there, there are realities in the world that if we saw them for what they really are and felt them for what they really are, we would not be lukewarm. We would boil. That's the goal of reading the Bible. That's the ultimate goal of God in giving us the Bible. God does all of his works to bring us to this ultimate goal of not just knowing that there is infinite worth 
and excellence, but worshiping it with white-hot affection. Now, how does that happen? How does that come about? That's what I've been trying to figure out all my life. So we're at implication number three. It, it comes about first by seeing. Where, there'll be no song in worship where there's no sight of God's wonders. So implication number three, we should always read God's word in order to see this supreme worth and beauty. Let's go to Ephesians 3, 4. You don't need to look it up if you don't want to, but this is, this is a text that explicitly makes reading the connection or the link to seeing glory, reading. So Ephesians 3, 8 goes like this. I mean, 3, uh, 4 goes like this. When you read this, or literally in, in the Greek, it's a participle, reading this, and you have to decide whenever you see a participle in English or in Greek, uh, what's the logical relationship if I say um, hungering, I knock down the, the kitchen door. I say, well, what does hungering have to do with knocking down the kitchen door? It's, it's the, the reason, it's the cause. <laughs> and, and here, reading, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I think that's one of the greatest sentences in the world. Reading. Can you believe that? Reading. You can perceive, see, go into my apostolic direct line with the living Christ. Insight into the mystery of Christ. And four verses later... He says, to me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what he means by mysteries of, mystery of Christ in verse 4. Mystery of Christ in verse 4, restated in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's groping for words, right? He has to use the word unsearchable. The unsearchable. Well, he searches them, believe me. They are not unsearchable in the sense that they can't be searched. They're unsearchable in the sense that they can't be searched exhaustively. Oh, you can search them. You better search them, right? To call the riches of Christ unsearchable doesn't mean, up. Oh, watch TV then. When, when the ways and judgments of God in Romans eleven thirty three are called inscrutable and unsearchable, he has just finished three chapters of the greatest searching in the universe. Romans 9 to 11 are no testimony to the fact that you can't search God or the ways of God. He took us further up and further in in Romans 9 to 11 than any human's ever gone ever, anywhere. You spend your life in Romans 9 to 11. What he meant was when he climbed that uh, 10, that's too low, 28,000 foot mountain in, in the Alps or Himalayas. He, he climbed and he pulled, he pulled himself up at the top, bringing us with them in the revelation of Romans 9 to 11. He means, okay, that's as high as I'm going. And there they are. 
peaks that stretch so high they disappear into the clouds. So he doesn't mean you can't climb. You can spend a lifetime climbing in this book. So, unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8. Then, interestingly, in Colossians 1.27, unsearchable riches are described like this. The riches of the glory of this ministry. And he simply adds the word glory. And I'm just drawing that in to tie it in with the other things we've been seeing So the riches of the glory of this mystery in Colossians 1.27. So the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3.4, the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, and riches of his glory, Colossians 1.27, I think are all basically referring to the same thing. And here's the sentence again. By reading... Something so ordinary. I mean, my kids could do it when they were four just because my wife read to them incessantly as soon as they could be propped up in her lap. So these kids are reading. And then when they're six, they're seven, they're reading Lewis, C.S. Lewis. You, you can teach kids to read. Every kid, most kids in the West, learn to read. This is so ordinary. And something as ordinary as reading, Paul says, is the pathway into glory. My my heart sings every time that sentence hits home to me. And I feel so thankful that at 70, I still get to read my Bible. And I've, I've spent 60 years reading my Bible. And every morning, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. How could it not be, right? I mean, if, just if it's God's word. If, if what we've staked our lives on is true, how could it not be? And so for him to say it, say the obvious, by reading, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ should make all of us want to stay up late and get up early with our book. Now, just to clarify here, uh, when I say in, in implication three, We should always read God's Word in order to see this supreme worth and beauty. I don't mean, oh, well, then you just ignore the, you know, kind of the more mundane or practical things you see in the Bible, like singleness and marriage and parenting and vocation and aging and war and sickness and death and the hundred other practical things that the Bible talks about on almost every page. Is that what you're saying? Just kind of just keep pushing those aside until you get some glory pieces. Glory pieces. <laughs> no, it's not what I'm saying. I say, rather, by all means see them. See all of them. See them with crystal clarity. See them with meticulousness. See them in all their relations and above all see them never apart from the glory of God. 
If you try to take children obey your parents and turn that into a parenting style, apart from its rootedness in and its aiming toward and its reliance upon the glory of God and his ways in Christ, you will not be a Christian parent. Unbelievers require obedience of their kids. There's nothing uniquely Christian about children obey your parents. But in the Bible there is, because the Bible is a whole. Everything is connected to everything. So when I'm, what I'm saying is don't ignore that sentence. That's crucial. No kid will turn out right if his parents neglect that sentence. But neither will they if they don't see that sentence in the, the relationship to the glory of God. Of God, and that's what I would say about absolutely everything. I remember reading Mark Knoll's description. I think it was about 1980 or so when I first saw it. Mark Knoll, the historian at Notre Dame, his description of Jonathan Edwards, and he was the first one who used, I never saw it before, used the phrase, Edwards was God besotted. I've loved it ever since. I want to be God besotted. But what he meant was, Edward saw every word of Scripture in relation to God. Absolutely everything. Everywhere he turned, if you look at a light or a ceiling or a microphone or a platform or a computer or whatever, he, he would just see it instantly in relation to God. God besotted. So, no, I don't mean when I say in implication number three, read in order to see the supreme worth and beauty of God, I don't mean skip any part of it. I mean see the infinite worth and beauty of God everywhere in relation to everything in the Bible because that's the ultimate goal of reading the Bible. And if you leave it out, what you do see will be distorted. Oh, man, I'd just love to stop here. And I remember when I was in graduate school in Germany, and even, even through seminary as well, the, the students talking about how much can you learn from an unbelieving scholar? You know, read, read a, a commentary of a person who didn't believe in, in uh, the supernatural, say. How much can you learn? And back and forth, well, he had great insights into the culture in Galatia and the way Paul was arguing. And... and <laughs> You can, you can learn lots and lots of facts from unbelievers on everything. But all those facts are distorted until they're brought into relationship for their reason for being and where they came from and how they're held in being. And the design that they have in uh, a Christ-exalting justice in the world. And a dozen other questions that define the fact for what it's really about. So, yeah, raw facts can be learned. But truth about facts and what to do with them and how they relate to other facts and what the point of the fact is and how to use the fact and how the fact relates to ultimate reality. None of that's possible 
until the Bible is sought for God. Implication number four, we should aim in all our seeing to savor God's excellence above all things. So we've been dwelling on seeing through reading from Ephesians 3, 4, and now we turn from the supreme worth of God's glory and from the final white-hot worship and from seeing to savoring God's glory in our reading. There will be no white-hot worship. I'm still lingering over that word in the goal. Our goal is exalting God with white-hot worship, rising from a blood-bought bride of Christ. We'll never go there if we only see and not savor. Now, where does that show up in Scripture? For example, in John 15, 11, Jesus says, these words, these things I have spoken to you. So now we have a portion of this word explained to us in this way. These words have I spoken to you, John 15, 11, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Then again in John 17, 13, he's praying. Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. They're recorded in the Gospel of John. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We do not read the words of Jesus rightly until that happens. Because that's why he said he gave them. Until what happens? His joy becoming our joy in our hearts. That's supernatural. Because Jesus is supernatural. Jesus is raised from the dead. And what is Jesus' joy in? Jesus' joy is supremely in his Father. In the relationships of the Trinity. And in all the wonderful overflow in the work of redemption. And so if the joy of Jesus is our joy, then we are experiencing a joy in the Father with the very joy of Jesus. I think this is mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. If you were to, if you were to push me and say, what do you think it, it means most deeply to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible says be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? I think it means that the Holy Spirit is so present and powerful that he is mediating to you the very life of the Trinity as they enjoy one another. And so the Son enjoying the Father becomes our joy in the Father by the presence of the Son through the Spirit in our lives. And Jesus says, I spoke to you. So that would happen. I spoke. I spoke. That, that does not happen by closing your Bible and taking a walk in Skimania. Because it's beautiful out there. Unless you take a lot of Bible with you. Which you do. Because you have read it. But if you want 
to have this happen, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. So when I get up in the morning and I go to this word, I am going with the expectation that's why they're here. That I might see and then savor God with the very savoring of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit, I think, is meant to do. Here's another text. This one really came home to me when I was teaching 1 Peter last fall with the seminary guys at Bethlehem Seminary. It says in 1 Peter 2, right after he talks about being born again through the living and abiding Word of God. We'll talk about that later. He says then in in chapter 2, earnestly desire the pure milk And I think in the context it means of the word, the pure milk of the word, in order that you may grow up into salvation. And then he adds this. If you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. That's verse 3 of 1 Peter 2. What does that if mean? Earnestly desire the pure spiritual milk of the word, that you may grow up into salvation if you've tasted. Not if you've known, tasted. Taste and see. It's a quotation from Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what I mean by savoring. And I think what he's saying is, you, you won't grow into salvation until the word awakens taste. We grow by taste. This is not the way bodies grow. Bodies grow by nutrition, whether it tastes good or not. In fact, most of it that helps you grow doesn't taste good. <laughs> Heaven will be different. That's not the case. For, for a spiritual life, tasting is essential, according to 1 Peter 2, 3. Psalms. Wow. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the very first psalm. There it is. Standing as a gateway into 150 psalms is number one. Blessed is the man. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his law day and night. His delight, his delight, his savoring is in the Lord. 28 times in Psalm 119, it says that reading God's word gives delight. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. This is is the inspired writers grasping for language to help us realize what has to happen. Desire like a miser going after gold and sweet like tasting honey. More desirable than gold, sweeter than honey, rejoicing the heart. Those three things. You can't miss the point. So we should aim, I'm arguing, in all our Bible reading, not only to see, 
but to savor the excellence of God above all things. Implication number five. In all our Bible reading, in all our reading, we should aim to be transformed by this seeing and savoring into the likeness of his beauty. Now, why is that implied in my goal? It's implied in the goal because when I say God intends to be exalted through white-hot worship, I don't mean, and he doesn't mean, that that white-hot worship can be invisible forever and God get the glory he deserves. And what I mean by invisible is just in here. Like at any given moment, my heart might be thrilled with God and you not know it. And in that moment then, I am glorifying God to God, but not to you. God does not mean for the world to end that way. (laughs) He doesn't mean for there to be a billion points of light that only shine in here. And God can see from the top, and he's really happy. You love me, and you love me, and you love me. And nothing is external. Nothing's changed. You, you can't tell by looking that this is happening. That's not the way the world is going to end. That's not the point of the New Testament. It's not the point of the Bible. So we should aim to be transformed, meaning everything about us is going to change in order for the savoring, the valuing of God to be manifest. And the key passage it's become so prominent in my thinking over the years. Is 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding. Okay, now you've got seeing. And I think seeing with savoring, and I'll show you why in a minute, because the Holy Spirit's at work here. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's an important verse. How do you get changed? How do you you get so transformed into the image of Christ so that there's not just this private savoring in my soul, but a change outwardly so that as we interact with people, this starts to be tasteable. You can hear it, you can see it, they're laying down their lives for others. Love, I think, is the primary manifestation of inner delight in God. Love is the, the overflow of delight in God to try to get others to share it, even if it costs us our lives. Now, where does that happen? How how does the behold, it says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. Where does that happen? Well, in the context, if you just get rid of the paragraph break and keep reading, then four verses later, you read this. 
In their case, the unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, beholding, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if you say, what, what glory were they beholding? The glory of the Lord in, in verse 18? Well, this glory. Only here it's called the glory of Christ shining in the gospel. And the gospel is a, a narrative of events. Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ reigns, Christ is coming. That's a, that's a narrative of events that's spoken or written down. So where, where do you see glory then? Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed. But unbelievers have their minds darkened so they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so my answer is, you see it here. With the gospel at the center and the rest of the Bible surrounding it, protecting it, opening it, applying it. You see God here. I, I don't expect to experience 2 Corinthians 3.18 in any other way than seeing the glory of God here. Now, that may be an overstatement. Let me just qualify it because I can just think right off the bat where somebody might go. Paul said, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And Hebrews 11, of course, is the great chapter for looking at people who have faith. In other words, this book, where this book is fleshed out and people are being transformed into the image of Christ, and you look at them, you're seeing a reflection of what they saw here. So I don't overstate it. When I read Christian biography, I do get help. I am moved to go here more and to apply this better and to grow in grace. So seeing grace in your lives, that beautification I was talking about, does make a difference in our being transformed into the image of, of Christ. So implication number five is that as we read the Bible, we're, number one, trying to see what's really there, the worth and the beauty and the greatness of God, and number two, we're trying to savor it with affections that are suitable to the greatness of what we've seen. And third, as we look at that, we are praying earnestly that we would be changed into the glory that we are seeing. Which brings us now, finally, to number six. We read the Bible so that through that transportation and the, the visible nature of the Christian church in the world, loving others at great cost to themselves, so that more and more people would be drawn into the worshiping family of God until the bride of Christ across all centuries and cultures is complete in number and beauty. Revelation 5 when, when we look into heaven in Revelation 5 and say, what, is the, what does the final worship look like? What are they singing? What are they saying? This, this is what they're saying. They sang a new song, Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song, worthy 
That, that's the key word. It's the first word of worship. You are of infinite worth. Nothing else. You are of infinite worth. But it, it gets specific. Worthy are you to take the scroll, Christ, and to open its seals. For you were slain. So the death of Jesus is right at the heart of the manifestation of his worth. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. And so the purchase of a people is right at the heart of what makes him so worthy and beautiful. And then from every tribe and language and people and nation... And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, that promise of a purchase of a, a bride of Christ from all the peoples and all the languages and all the ethnicities was promised in the Old Testament like this. This is Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the earth. So one of the great themes running through all of Scripture is, my people must never be ethnocentric. There's a lot of ethnocentric Christians. Otherwise, you would not have had Rwanda. Right? Hutus and Tutsis, both of them professing to be Christians, slaughtering each other. And today. So it really matters to God that his people not be ethnocentric, but Christocentric, in whom barbarian and Scythian and slave and free are one. Because, and I, if you if you just say, okay, that that's cool, that's that's right, but if you stop and say, why, why, why number one would he make so many kinds of ethnic groups and racial variations? Why why did he do that? And number two, why does it help accomplish his purposes that they all have to be included? And wouldn't, I mean, I, I wrote my book on missions, and I've got a whole section on why that is. One of the reasons is. Every culture and every person is like a prism, a unique prism put in the light of God's glory. And you as an individual and you as an ethnic kind of individual are a unique prism. And as, as that's turned, the glory of God is refracted through those uniquenesses in ways that would not happen otherwise. God gets more glory through unified, Christ-exalting diversity than he does through unified, Christ-exalting, monolithic churches. So it really matters that the end goal of all Bible reading be the white-hot worship of a bride of Christ from all the peoples of the world. So we are a missionary people. 
conclusion. Um, God has made his written word as indispensable as his incarnate word in accomplishing his purposes. I wonder if you agree with that. That's pretty risky. God has made his written word as indispensable in the accomplishment of his purposes as Jesus, as the incarnate word. Unless you, unless you go where that's not going, let me say this. Um, the Bible is essential and Christ is essential, but not in the same way. The Bible is not as glorious as Christ. The Bible is not as ultimate as Christ. The Bible is not as foundational as Christ. But both are indispensable. Without the reading of this book, all the purposes of God fail. God didn't design a plan B. Like, oh, we'll just let the Bible go out of existence. Nobody will read the Bible anymore. Nobody will have access anymore to the truth of the Bible. And everything else will be okay. It won't be okay. Because God has designed that he accomplish his purposes through the reading of the scriptures. There would be no saving knowledge of God. There would be no new birth. There would be no faith. There would be no seeing and savoring of God. No experience of his forgiveness. No transformation. No completed and beautiful bride without his written word and no white hot worshiping family for the Father. So the ultimate aim of creation, the ultimate aim of inspiring the Bible, the ultimate aim of our reading the Bible is back to the front of your page at the top, God's, that God's infinite worth and beauty will be exalted in the everlasting white-hot worship of blood-bought bride of Christ from every people and language and tribe and nation. And therefore, oh, how thankful we should be that God has given us and preserved for us his written word.